The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And they rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, He was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Good morning again. If you are in pre-K, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, or fourth grade, will you come up and we're just going to hang out and talk for just a couple minutes. So come on up. Are you in fourth grade, Lindsay? Okay, my, my bad. I'm going to start my timer here because if I go over, I'm going to hear about it from my boss. So, you know. Um, All right. How many days is it until Christmas? Who knows? Yes, ma'am. Two days. All right. I want to know what your favorite thing about Christmas is, whether it's Christmas cookies or wrapping gifts or Christmas cookies or, I don't know, maybe decorating a tree or maybe Christmas cookies. I don't know. What's what are your favorite things? Celebrating Jesus' birthday. Good. Yes, ma'am. Cookies? All right. I think we're together on that. Yes, ma'am. Opening presents? Yes, ma'am. Opening presents. All right. Um, What do you think one of my favorite things is about Christmas? Any guesses? Christmas cookies? Maybe that's one of them. Um, One of my other favorite things about Christmas is lights. Do you guys put lights in your house or on your tree? Yeah. I love Christmas lights. Um, and there's a picture, I don't know if you can see it, but 10 years ago, I lived in London, and there's a street called Regent Street, and they cover the whole street in so many Christmas lights, it lights it up like it's daytime, and it feels just magical. It's so beautiful. Um, Lights are one of my favorite things about Christmas, and this morning, I'm here to tell you that Christmas is a light story. Did you guys know that? Christmas is a story of light coming into darkness, And it's not the lights on your tree or on your street 
or the candles in your window, the light that we're talking about is Jesus. Um, The world became a dark place because of sin. Things like greed and stealing and lying. And and the world became dark. And everybody suffered from this problem. Everybody felt it. But nobody had a solution except God had a solution. And that was to send his son Jesus as a light into a dark world. So this morning, I think after this time, Lindsay is going to give you guys a little tea light, and there's no real flame on it. It's electronic. Don't worry, parents. Um, And I want you to hang on to that tea light, and this week, remember that Christmas is a light story, and maybe you can put it by your bed or on a table or someplace you can remember it. Remember that Christmas is a story of light. I'm going to read you two Bible verses. We're going to talk about one more thing, and we'll be done. Uh, From John 1, John tells us that Christmas is a story of light and dark. He says, in him, in Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And in Malachi, we get written into the story. And it says, we are in darkness, but we have seen the great light. Um, Now, one more thing. Bear with me. We sang a hymn earlier called O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Do you guys know that Christmas carol? Have you guys sung that before? It's one of my favorites. And one of the verses we sang talks about light and darkness. It says this. It says, O come, O bright and morning star, bring us comfort from afar. And listen to this part. Dispel the shadows of the night and turn our darkness into light. And it talks about darkness and light and Jesus coming and being the light that dispels darkness. Um, Any guesses how old that hymn is? You guys have any idea? I had to look it up. It's over 1,500 years old. So old, right? I can't even understand how old that is. Um, 1,500 years old. Um, If you take all the verses of that hymn, and you take the first letter, bear with me, of each verse, and you read it backwards. In Latin, it says, arrow cross, which means tomorrow I will be with you. And it's a reminder that Jesus has come, but that he's also coming. And so at Christmas, we remember a God who keeps his promises and sent light into darkness. And we wait and we look for Jesus, the King of light, to come back. So Merry Christmas. Remember, Christmas is a story of light. Hang on to your tea light this week and eat some Christmas cookies. Thank you, guys. (laughs) And you are going to go back and sit with your parents in this service. So after you get a tea light from Lindsay, you can go back and sit with your parents. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Tim. Thanks, kids. That was awesome. That was so much fun. We're here. We're at this place. Listen, if you um, have a Bible, we're going to be from the passage in Matthew 2 if you want to have that open in front of you. But uh, I love this time of the year. I love where we are uh, in this season. Um, I can't wait for Christmas. And um, I I just want to wish you all a Merry Christmas as well. And uh, say that I I hope you have a great Christmas if you're traveling. I hope your travels are safe. Um, And uh, it's it's an amazing thing. Uh, And holidays are important. Holidays are something that... Uh, the Lord gives us to to have a rhythm uh, of remembering things that are significant. Uh, you know, it comes from the idea of a holy day, right? That's what a holiday is. And Christmas is one of those those seasons where we remember without this, without this, 
the, the gospel would not stand. We, we needed someone not just to die in our place, but to live perfectly in our place. And that's what Christ came to do. Uh, that's what the birth is about. And so, uh, Merry Christmas. I, I have the, the, the challenge, the distinct challenge this morning of having it be a Sunday where the kids are in the room and I'm preaching on Herod. Uh, and uh, so, we're going to do this. And I am going to do my best to make it so that the car ride home is fine. It's just fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> I relate to Herod. Uh, and I think all of us can relate to Herod. Um, because Herod was a person who, well, let me say it this way. We become who we are. Who we are is who we've become over time. So the things that we fear are things that we have learned to fear. Uh, the things that we put our hope in are things that we've learned to trust in. Uh, the things that we value, the things that we love, the things that we hate, the things that we avoid, that is, we become that over time. And so we become who we are. And when we read, when we read this story about Herod, and I'm going to spend a significant part of our time telling you his story, telling you the story of where Herod comes from. When we get to this point in the story, he is a megalomaniac, he is paranoid, he is vengeful, ruthless, and is doing what he's doing in this passage because that's how he is wired, uh, and, and that's how he knows how to survive. And I, I relate to Herod in this sense. I relate to Herod in the sense that I know what it's like to try to control a narrative, I know what it's like to have something that I am committed to not ever losing or not having anybody threaten. And I'll bet that you are the same. I'll bet that you have things in your life where you, where you are saying, this pain I experienced, I'm never going to go through that again. And I'm going to control things in a way that that never happens. And, and so I'm inviting us this morning to relate um, to Herod. We're going to talk about him. He's the villain in the Christmas story. I was talking with somebody a couple days ago about how one of the things that's so fascinating about the Christmas story is how built for children it is. When you think about the simplicity of the Christmas story, it's kind of got it all, right? It's got a star. It's got outdoors. It's got a villain. It's got animals, right? It's got angels showing up. It's got a baby, right? This story is just kind of built for kids, and I think the lesson for us in that is a story that is built for kids is a story that has the opportunity and the, and the strength to awaken wonder in us, to awaken a childlike sense of wonder. And this story has a villain, and the villain is Herod. And, and he's, he's committed to undoing the Christmas story. He's committed to thwarting it. And so he's trying to destroy Jesus. He's trying to destroy Jesus by destroying anyone who could be like Jesus. And it's truly tragic, and it's dark, right? It's important when we look at character, characters like Herod that we don't just kind of see them as cartoon characters. Herod's not just this villain with a cigarette on a long stem twisting his mustache. You know, he's, he's not a cartoon character. He's, he's a real person. And we benefit from looking into to his life to see what we can learn from him. 
uh, because we have things in common with him. In particular, this desire to rule on the throne of our own lives. There's an author I love named Frederick Buechner, who's a Presbyterian minister and, a, and an incredible uh, literary author, just a beautiful writer. And he has a book called The Magnificent Defeat. And that expression, The Magnificent Defeat, is an expression, it's a euphemism for what the gospel is. It's the story of God defeating us. It's the story of God defeating our desire for autonomy, our desire for being separated from him and being God of our own cosmos. And the cross of Christ is a defeat. And, and so part of what I want us to think about this morning as we look at Herod is to say, Lord, where in my life do I need you, just, I need you to de- defeat me? overrule me, thwart me in places where I'm trying to get rid of my need of you. The Christmas story is confrontational. And the reason it's confrontational is because it is the story of a birth of a king. And it's birth of a king who is king of kings, which means he is a supreme authority. He's the kind of king that because of the nature of the authority that belongs to him, we only have two things we can do with him. We can surrender our lives to him as loyal subjects, or, can, or we can rebel against him. But those are the only two options that we have. And Herod seemed to understand that. He seemed to understand that the world would not be big enough for two kings. And so he was committed to undoing it. And so the Christmas story is confrontational because it's this birth of a king who claims authority over all creation, which means it's the story of a king we all must submit to or reject. And so I want to tell you Herod's story. I've spent time researching this story and studying this character, and it's a fascinating thing. And so uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just read to you my notes. I'll try to do it in a way that doesn't sound like I'm reading, but, but here we go. I'm going to tell you his story. It, it's set in the Roman Empire, and we're going to go all the way back, not too far back, but we're going to go back to March 15th, 44 B.C., okay? On March 15th, 44 B.C., Julius Caesar is in power. And when Julius Caesar arrived for a Senate meeting on that day, there was another senator whose name was Tilius Cimber. And Tilius Cimber approached Julius Caesar, and he was distraught. And he came to Caesar, and he was begging the emperor, please let my politically exiled brother return home without fear of retribution. I've got a brother who's in exile. Let him come home. And don't kill him when he does. And others in that Senate started to crowd around the two men in support of Simber. And Caesar was trying to wave him off and give space, but Simber grabbed Caesar by the shoulders and he's pleading with the emperor for mercy. And it was during this commotion that another senator named Cassius gave the signal and one of the others rushed at Caesar with a knife. And Caesar deflected the blow But in the process of doing that, he saw just dagger after dagger after dagger coming at him. And they were coming at him hard and fast. And the last thing that Julius Caesar saw as he lay dying was his own Senate standing over him, which included his most trusted friend, Brutus. In that moment... Though it wasn't formally pronounced, Caesar's power transferred from Caesar to Cassius. 
who led that insurrection. And there was a governor named Antipater of Idumea who, like the rest of Caesar's staff, now had to make a decision. And the decision was, where do my loyalties lie now? Do they lie with the assassin of my emperor or with somebody else? And he chose Cassius. Choosing loyalty to Cassius was a bit more complicated than just declaring it. Because Cassius determined that given the high cost of feigned loyalty, which Caesar's death so graphically illustrated, that such an allegiance should be expensive enough that it would weed out pretenders. So if you want to be loyal to Cassius, he said it will cost you 700 talents. Now for us to understand that money, 700 talents was a fortune that few cities, let alone individuals, could afford to pay. It was a lot of money. And so Antipater had to decide, how am I going to get 700 talents? He decided that he would do this through taxing the people he governed. And so he divided his region into seven parts, and he assigned those parts to seven of his most reliable men, and his son Herod was one of them. And Herod was responsible for the region of Galilee, and Galilee was tough. Galilee was a tough region to rule. It had become a haven for brigands, which are basically land pirates. And they were choking out trade. They were chasing away any sense of safety in the region. And so for Herod to gather his portion of Cassius's wage for his father, one thing he had to do is he had to bring Galilee under control, under his control. And so he had to put down the lawless. And that's what he did. He put down the lawless. Herod got what he wanted. And though he never totally eliminated his opposition, he proved to be a shrewd tactician among the, Gentile, the, the Galileans. And both his father and Cassius recognized in young Herod the skills of a leader. One of the marks of Herod's leadership was his paranoia. The older he got, the less he trusted anybody. Nobody. In fact, if you go over and you visit uh, Israel, one of the things, and you tour around, one of the things that you will see regularly is yet another fortress that Herod built. And he did this, the reason he did this, he built all these different fortresses all around the city and he, all around the, the country land, the, the countryside, and he never let anybody know where he was because the thinking was he wanted people to believe that he could be in any of them at any time. Because if people would believe he could be in any of them at any time, they would just have to assume he was in all of them all the time. Right, And so this is what he did. He built these things, and, and, he, and he, he didn't trust anybody. He was mercilessly committed to sniffing out even the faintest hint of insurrection, even if it was only circumstantial, even if it was only rumor. He would sniff it out, and he would take action, and he usually found something when he started to look for it. Sometimes it was only in loose circumstantial evidence, but other times it was in assassination plots that were certainly already underway. But regardless, his retribution was always there. It was always swift. It was always fatal. And his reputation for being somebody who had a ruthless response to disloyalty was most evident in the growing list of wives and sons that he had put to death for conspiring against him. Two things Herod learned. 
by watching his father's political career underneath a Roman system was that loyalties could change in a heartbeat and that daggers could easily be hidden in the folds of a robe. And so he came by his paranoia honestly. He was trying to hold a world together. And it was a world where he was in charge. And his paranoia most likely saved his life a couple of times. Enough to convince him that I need to keep this going. And so like his father before him, Herod was what was called Edomian. He was an Edomian by, by blood. Edomians were Edomites who had been forced to convert to Judaism by Hasmoneans, uh, who were a group of militant uh, Judeans who were committed to minimizing the Greek influence in the Promised Land. All of that is to say, is to say Herod was part Jewish. So he was part Jewish, and he took his Jewish heritage seriously. He observed certain ceremonial laws and customs, including keeping a kosher diet, which led one of his friends to observe that it was better to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's son. Still, as fickle as Herod appeared to those watching from a distance, there was a certain logic behind his volatility. Herod's family stood with their feet in two worlds, one in their inherited Judaism and the other in Roman politics. And for Herod, both of them required a tight grip and a watchful eye. And Rome knew, they knew well how much political sensitivity was required for maintaining peaceful control over religious people. Especially monotheists like the Jews, people who believed in one God. So as far as Rome was concerned, Herod was perfect. He was everything they could have asked for. He was politically sensitive, he was culturally aware, And he was ruthless. And so he came from the right stock. He had his priorities straight. His political ambitions outweighed his need to be accepted by the Jewish people. Because he didn't need to be accepted by the Jewish people if he could be their king. Because if he was their king, they would have to accept him. And so little by little, the Senate of Rome gave Herod more and more power. And they gave him more responsibility. Eventually naming him king of Judea which by decree made him king of the Jews. And there would only be one. There would only be one, and that would be Herod. And so when we come to this passage, and Herod gets news from the Magi, we, start, we, we can understand a little bit more of what, what the mechanics are involved in his ruthless decision. This is a guy who is holding things together. We sang that hymn, I Asked the Lord. And the writer says he asked the Lord for greater faith. And the Lord showed him layer of, and after layer of his own sin and his own need and just peeled him back. Herod's story invites us to look inward. It invites us to take an honest look at ourselves because we become who we are. When Herod learned that the Magi were searching for a king, he didn't sit flummoxed by what to do next. He knew what to do. Instinct took over. Murderous retribution was part of the fabric of who he was. He knew how to handle that. And so I want us to ask, I want to ask us to, to do this this morning, and that's just something that requires honesty and vulnerability, and that is to relate, to relate to Herod. Where are you seeking control of the narrative of your own life? 
Where are you making decisions that affect others in order to protect yourself? What are the lines you're drawing where you're saying, this is the kingdom I rule, and if anybody threatens it, they're in trouble. Where is that? It can happen in a variety of ways. I want to name just a few, but I want you to think about that question as you think about the Herod story. Because Herod's story is the story of being defeated. Being defeated by Christ. Maybe you're somebody who's been hurt. You've been hurt by somebody at some point and you've decided that you will control how close people can come to you. Who can get into your kingdom. And how much you're willing to trust. Or maybe you're, you're somebody who, you have ambition. And ambition drives you. And you know it drives you. And it drives you that there's some goal you want to achieve. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's professional. Maybe it's relational. Maybe it's in terms of reputation or following or whatever. But you have some kind of ambition. And you find yourself actually harming other people through, through posturing and through reputation assassination. And through deception. And cutting people out of your life. Conscripting people into your life all for the sake of reaching that goal and just for the sake of reaching that goal. Or maybe you have a kingdom that you're trying to maintain, one that looks and functions in a way that you want it to and one that you have to have it function. And, and, and so when anybody threatens it, you lash out, you kick people to the curb and you are determined that you're going to maintain, you're going to hold on to this. And you relate to a degree maybe to, para, to Herod's paranoia, to his need to say, I have to, I have to cleanse from all the threats, I have to get them out of here. Because it's, it's a common internal struggle, isn't it? It's a common internal struggle that we all have. We all fear that if we don't hold things together, everything will fall apart. Or most of us do. And so we become maniacs bent on controlling. Or at least having the appearance of control. What was Herod afraid of? Herod was afraid that the king of the Jews would defeat him. That was what he was afraid of. Even though it was a baby, he saw, he knew how these kinds of things could go, and he was afraid that he was going to be overthrown. And there can only be one king, only one loyalty. And so I asked the question, don't you, isn't there a part of you that just wants to be defeated? Isn't there something in you where you're like, this is exhausting, Trying to control this, it's exhausting. And I would give anything to be set free from, and I don't know how. I don't know how, because I feel like if I, if, I, if I lose control of it, then everything is going to fall apart. Don't you want to be defeated in some way? Herod's responsible for a dark part of the Christmas story, but from it comes a lot of light, because here's what happens. The Magi come, and they present these gifts. These are valuable gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They have a high street value. They didn't realize when they're giving these gifts that they're funding an emergency trip to Egypt. They're, they're making it so that Mary and, jo- Mary and Joseph can take Jesus and get out of there. That's what happens. And for Matthew's readers, which were Jewish, they would have seen the parallel, and it would have been a striking parallel for them. Because the story for God's people when it comes to Egypt is Egypt was the place where they went during a famine and they became enslaved. And God liberated them through the Exodus and set them free from their tyranny and brought them into the promised land. Egypt was the villain in that story, right? 
But here, now Egypt, even Egypt is being redeemed in the story that from Egypt, the Savior comes. That the Savior is actually coming now into the land that is full of tyranny, the promised land. Rome is ruling, and from Egypt now is coming the Savior of the world. That would have been striking to the first century reader to hear that. Herod seemed to have so much power. Seemed to be insurmountable, the amount of power that he had. But the main reason history remembers Herod, if we're honest, is because of the role that he plays here. That's the main reason anybody remembers Herod, is because the role he plays in the story of Christ. He's a menacing foil who tries to destroy Jesus, and he has the weight of the Roman Empire behind him. And what happens? He fails. He fails. And it's remembered now in infamy. And instead, what we remember is we remember a poor man named Joseph saddling his donkey in the middle of the night to take Mary, his wife, and their baby son to Egypt so that the boy would be safe until Herod did what all kings on this earth do, die. Was all of that, though, just to avoid Herod's trap? The going to Egypt and the coming back, was this all just about, well, we just need to keep the baby Jesus safe from him? No, there's more. All of this took place so that you and I would have a savior. That's why this happened. That's why Christmas happens. That's why we remember this. That's why we celebrate this. This took place so that we would have a savior. And our savior was one who came not seeking a throne, but he came seeking a cross. And no one took his life from him, but he did lay it down. And he laid it down of his own accord. And it was a real life, a life born of a woman. And the truth of Christmas is that because of all this, we see and we know that God is fiercely committed to seeking and saving his people. And not even the Roman Empire at the height of its power could stop it. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck you from his hand. The only safe place then, the only refuge, the only lasting kingdom belongs to Christ. And he was born to call us home. Not as servants, not as slaves, but as brothers and sisters, as sons and daughters. And so at Christmas, we celebrate the gift of a Savior. And it's a gift not even the Roman Empire in its prime could stop from happening. That's the gift of Christmas. It's the gift of Christ. To him be the glory. Pray with me. Father, thank you that in the story of Christmas, we have this reminder through, through Herod that we're not talking about a fable. We're not talking about a made-up event that's just a parable to inspire us to be better people, to live our best life now, but that we have been given one who would be our king. And part of the way that he would rule over us would be to defeat us in our quest for autonomy. 
And Lord, that's something that we resist and we rebel against and, and, and we don't like and we, and we struggle with. Help us to see that this is a good thing coming from your hand and to hold our lives with an open hand before you. Thank you for the power of the gospel which transforms lives. Thank you for the way that the life and ministry of Jesus has transformed millions of people around the world as they've contemplated his birth and his death and his resurrection. We're grateful for your mercy and your grace and your kindness to your people. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.